the current thing with me, Nick Dixon, where we talk about politics, the culture war, and anything else that comes up. And today we have another brilliant guest, the author and professor of politics, Eric Kaufman. Thanks for doing the show, Eric. Thanks for having me on, Nick. Yeah, no worries. We've got so many interesting things we can talk about because there's so many areas that we cover on this podcast that you cross over with. You've got a new book coming out. I'm not going to name it in case you change the title last minute, but, but it, you, you said it was an anal- analysis of the woke phenomenon, where it came from, how it spread, where it's going, what to do about it. So that is something we talk about all the time on this podcast. So maybe we start with the first one. Where do you think wokeness come from, came from? Because some people say it's French postmodernist thought. Some people say it's a result of certain laws. Everyone's got a different idea. What do you think? Well, my, my argument in the book is that essentially it starts with the anti-racism taboo in the mid-1960s in the U.S. Uh, there's a great book called White Guilt by an African-American scholar called Shelby Steele, and he just says, you know, very suddenly uh, it went from kind of black people having to, to appease white people to the reverse in social interactions and in institutions and... All of a sudden, there was this taboo, and there are accounts of, you know, how people repainted the statues of their black coachmen on their, you know, these are middle class or upper middle class people. Um, All of a sudden, this taboo comes in. And once you, you know, and understandably in a way, because you'd had this system of Jim Crow in the South and segregation, but once you've got this kind of sacredness around a group, you can then take that and expand it. So it's not just direct interpersonal racism, but the U.S. is a racist country, or uh, you know the federal government is racist, or or then you can move it to women, you can move it to homosexuals, uh, trans, and so you can stretch it, and this becomes this zone of uh, things that you have to really watch your step around. And I think that is the origin of what then becomes political correctness, then becomes wokeness, and and that's a different approach to explaining it from a number of books that have come out recently, which you may or may not be uh, aware of, one of which actually I have over here, which is um, Chris Rufo's, of course, uh, America's Cultural Revolution, and also uh, there's another book coming out by Richard Hanania, and and also Chris Caldwell's book. Um, and, And their explanations are different, so one argument is that this was failed Marxists who turned from class to identity they still wanted to overthrow the system. They marched through the institutions, and there's a connection between, as Rufo would say, you know, Black Panther ideology, which was, you know, violent overthrow of the system, and BLM stroke critical race theory. And, and of course, there is a connection verbally, but is that really the driver that got us to where we are? Right. Uh, another argument is no. It's all about laws, which said, okay, you can't discriminate. We're going to enforce that. Uh, Oh, and by the way, if you don't have equal numbers of different racial groups, different genders, that's proof of discrimination. You see where that goes? So the idea is that that it all starts with law and all these unintended consequences, uh, which come out of that, which lead to a compliance culture, which leads to a kind of safety culture around offending certain groups in institutions. And that's a different argument as well. It's sort of uh, saying it's unintended consequences of legal decisions which somehow have cascaded down to where we are today. Um, And I'm sort of arguing a little bit against both of those premises to say it actually is this zone of sacredness that just gets stretched and stretched uh, and and eventually becomes all-encompassing. Hmm. 
That's interesting. Is, is the flaw of the law argument that it's why is it so universal across the West? Because we've got, we've got the Equalities Act 2010, which people often cite as a problem, but then America will have something different and Canada, but it seems to be kind of all across the West. Is that why it can't be laws? Yeah, that's part of it, right? I mean, we, there isn't quite the same affirmative action enforcement system, uh, you know, EEOC and all these um, civil rights uh, bureaucratic agencies that they have in the U.S. enforcing these laws don't exist to the same extent, although I think you could argue that in Britain, even before the 2010 Act, you had Equality Acts, which had, you know, they, they prevent, you know, there were judicial decisions against indirect discrimination, right, which is now already a stretching of the term discrimination to mean, oh, there aren't as many of this or that group you've got to improve. You see what I mean? So there were already those incentives in the legal system, even in Britain or, or other countries. But the main reason I would say is that there are a number of instances where, uh, like in the U.S. case, they rolled back affirmative action compliance standards and legislation under Ronald Reagan, didn't have any impact on firms' diversity training and, and what the firms were doing. Likewise, they, uh, speech codes have been struck down by the Supreme Court in the U.S. repeatedly. Affirmative action in California was banned. All of these things, none of it really prevented the practices from continuing because the activists in the, bureau in the administration of universities or companies, HR departments, um, were so invested ideologically. And similarly, also the judicial interpretations like affirmative action did not mean uh, racial preferences and quotas, but that is how it came to be interpreted by successive Supreme Courts and judges and administrators. So they're continually pushing the envelope, pushing the envelope, not because that's what the law says, but it's because it's their beliefs and they're reinterpreting the law to align with their beliefs. So, so this is why I'm saying it's kind of a cultural thing, and it's not simply the letter of the law and unintended consequences of trying to prevent getting sued. That, to me, is a, is a very, quite an insufficient explanation. Right. So we've heard the phrase, politics is downstream of culture. So you're sort of saying law is downstream of culture. And I suppose you're saying even that recent affirmative action uh, bill that was passed about the universities, that will do nothing then. Because that, that, that was a recent one, wasn't there, again, about that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so my, my prediction is that universities will resist that tooth and nail. Uh, we've seen this a bit, by the way, in Britain with the new uh, higher education free speech bill, which I was involved in working on. But what I will say is um, I think universities will also try and circumvent or resist that where it gets in the way of their ch cherished sacred values around social justice. We saw that in the University of Essex case with a couple of gender-critical feminists, Joe Phoenix, for example, they willfully misinterpreted the Equality Act, despite the fact that the you know, EHRC explicitly said this does not abrogate free speech duties, but they, they willfully misinterpreted that to suggest that if you had gender-critical feminists, this creates a hostile environment for uh, trans people, and therefore you couldn't tolerate free speech. So it's all this twisting that goes on in the interpretation. They're actually nakedly breaking the law. Uh, but they claimed they were acting in in the spirit of the law. But this is the kind of game that will be played to get around the law. Yeah, and that gives me... Well, there's two things I really want to ask, but I, don't, I think I'll go with... First, I, I wanted to ask more about where it came from. And the secondly, who, who actually is running things then? Because it kind of sounds like... So we have here the civil service seems to run everything and the, the blob. In America, it's called the deep state. It seems to be the same thing. But first, I wanted to just check. When you say it came from sort of anti-racism... 
how more specifically did that start? Because some people, because obviously in the, you mentioned the 60s, I think, and obviously in the 60s you have civil rights and most people think that's a good thing, although you will get some conservatives now that will even say that actually wasn't a good thing, but uh, that's pretty, you have to be pretty bold to say that. <laughs> Mostly people say civil rights was good, but we went too far. But what, what, what more specifically was, was it about this anti-racism movement, or how did it start exactly? Yeah, so, so again, where I, you know, someone like Rufo or... or um James Lindsay or even Francis Fukuyama would put a lot of emphasis on, uh, you know, the new left postmodernists and the, these people like Herbert Marcuse who were disenchanted with the working class and therefore moved to sort of newer uh, forces they thought could overthrow the system like minorities, uh, you know, feminism and homosexuals, etc. You know, I, I don't think this idea of wanting to overthrow the system is really the driver. Uh, I actually think it, this is something that kind of evolves in an incremental step-by-step way. So if you take somebody like Lyndon Johnson, he's not a Marxist. He's not somebody who's looking for a replacement for class. Uh, but he moves in 1965 from this idea of equal opportunities to equal results very quickly. So right. they move from this idea of removing barriers to African Americans not being discriminated very quickly, it's into goals and timetables for representation. Um, and he even makes a speech where he says, we don't want just equality of opportunity, we want equality of result. Now, in Johnson's mind, he probably thought this is the same thing. Because I think what occurs is these egalitarian liberals somehow in their mind developed what I call the progressive identity, which is there are bad majorities and there's good minorities. We've always got to be on the side of the good minorities and what they want. Um, and, and equality somehow morphs from equal treatment to equality of results. Again, in their heads, it's all about, you know, social justice. Again, one of those terms that obscures more than it illuminates. It allows you to kind of logically contradict yourself. And so I think just a lot of these left liberals morphed into a what I call cultural socialist position from a equal treatment, due process, non-discrimination, civil rights position, which is consonant with classical liberalism, they sort of shift into cultural socialism, which is equal outcomes for all groups, and if we don't have them, we're going to violate. Or, or, or if uh, people say they are offended and they happen to be a protected group, then we have to suppress the speech of anybody who is offending them, even if they say something like, you know, anyone can make it in America, or I don't, I don't notice race, things like that. If, if minorities say they're microaggressions, then we have, to, we have to ban them with a speech code. In their mind, they think, oh, no, this is all part of this blob I think of as being progress. But actually, they pivoted from um, equal treatment, individual rights, right the way to cultural socialism without even just a sleight of hand. They may not even realize they've done it, but they have. Yeah, yes, right. So it's a sort of general decline, woolly thinking on the left, going from equality of opportunity, which is merit, meritocracy, to equality of outcome, which is sometimes called equity, which is a completely different system, basically communism, but from liberalism to socialism without even really noticing. That's very interesting. But one presumes there are some people who do know on the edges what's going on there, there's academics and so on, but perhaps the Lyndon Johnson, like you say, a politician may not really grasp it, much in the way that you wonder how much Trump grasped Steve Bannon's program or something <laughs> like that. So, yeah, I mean, I could see that. And so now we end up with a situation where I wanted to, well, I was going to ask who's running things, because you're saying 
And we see this all the time. They're going against actual laws. A politician says something in this country, maybe Suella Bravman says, I want to do this in my department, and everyone just ignores it in, our own, you know, in the civil service. So, so actually the politicians aren't running. The Tories, despite being in for 13 years, always sound like the party of opposition because they can't do anything. They're trying to do things, but their own administration won't let them. So what's happening here, Eric? Is there just a group of people in, well, what do you think is happening? Well, I think if you look at the structure of opinion in organizations that lean somewhat to the left or, or a lot to the left, what you have is roughly 10, maybe 20% who are all in on cancel culture. Someone says something offensive, they should be fired. You know, that, but that's only a minority. I mean, it's maybe one in 10, one in five at the most. You then have this other group of about 40 percent um, who are really conflicted. They know there's something wrong with firing somebody for what they tweeted uh, and, gang and dogpiling them and driving them out. But on the other hand, they really, really, really want to be on the side of the underdog and fight the fight. Uh, for the for the oppressed against the oppressor, they bought into that kind of progressive identity, right? Um, and so they can't. And, and also, they're acutely sensitive to these new these taboos, the race, obviously anti-racism, but now also anti-sexism and uh, anti-trans, anti-homophobia. Desperately not wanting, you know, thinking that the moral person is somebody who can never be accused of that. So, you have that group which I would call kind of left liberal. Um, who are signed up to um, the public morality, which emerges gradually after 1965, after the race taboo, which is really the watershed. Um, after that, it sort of seeps in. And so because of that, it's just very difficult to, it's very difficult to oppose anything that is done in the name of anti-racism uh, or uh, anti-trans or, or whatever, it, because to oppose an anti-racist measure kind of makes you suspect and therefore equals you a racist. And therefore, if there's a measure that says we want to protect employees of color by instituting a speech code, uh, if you go against that, there's a cloud over you, at least in the, even if it's only a small, again, it's only one in 10, but your kind of, your perception is, well, there's the one in 10, but then there's all these other people who look to the one in 10 for moral leadership and what are they going to think of me? And so I better shut up. Mm. Uh, but I, I don't want to emphasize fear too much because I don't think this is primarily a fear story. I think it's primarily people who actually believe in the sort of drift of what the woke are doing and are willing to go along with it. Um, and and I, I call this, I kind of have this term... Uh, radioactive velvet glove, which I'm trying to. Maybe that's too many words, but <laughs> but what what you have is is, is sounds like a the, '90s band or something, doesn't it? It sounds like yeah. an alternative rock band for the '90s. <laughs> Sorry, go on. Yeah. So so what it is is essentially um, this belief system. It's it's a it's an iron fist, which is about speech suppression, uh, and it's about violation of individual rights and reason and all these things. So there's the iron fist, but it's in the velvet glove which is marked with a nice liberal label like inclusion, equity, anti-racism, whatever. So you've got this velvet glove. A lot of people don't rip off the label. They just look at the velvet glove and they go, yeah, I'm, I'm down with in inclusion, of course, because I'm a good person. So that, I think, wins over 40%. Then you have, for the, for the rest of the people, you've got to have something that stings, and that is the radioactivity. You, know, you oppose my anti-racist initiative, then all of a sudden you become radioactive 
by mm. putting your head above the parapet. So there's a carrot and a stick. Very effective evolutionary strategy here. Um, and so I think that is what makes it so difficult in these organizations for you to stand up. You, you've got to be willing, A, you've got to be able to unmask this belief system and not just look at the tin and the label on it. And secondly, you've got to be willing to deal with that radioactivity, which is inevitably going to attach to you. Yeah, that's interesting, the radioactive velvet glove. That's why, presumably, we see people viciously piling on and cancelling people on Twitter. Then invariably, you go to their bio and it says, be kind. And so they've, <laughs> they've got both. It's like, okay, that's the velvet part. You're saying kindness, but your actions seem to be a little bit different. So, yeah, they've got both. Yeah, yeah, go along with our woke, inc our inclusive, tolerant program, and if you don't, your scum will destroy you. Um, and why, they must know, though, Eric, see, I've got a little theory here, and it seems like you may have said something similar. I'll just quote something from uh, your piece in Unheard, where you, where, where you were quoting The Guardian, so it's a bit of a, a, a meta thing, but they, you said, it said there is scant evidence, this is The Guardian, it says there's scant evidence that CRT, critical race theories, associated concepts are widespread in British schools, claimed Daniel Trilling in The Guardian. A handful of right-wing commentators have been trying to import the moral panic into the UK, mainly via the pages of The Telegraph and Spectator. And then you say, but my findings demolish this trope that CRT is only being taught in a few isolated radical outposts. What I notice there is they want to deny it's happening. And we saw this recent Coots scandal, where the bank Coots was denying Nigel Farage a bank account, and they had this internal dossier saying it's because he's a wrong and he's got bad political views. He's a disingenuous grifter was one of the things that was actually said in the bank. And then when it came out, and immediately the CEO of NatWest, the parent company of Coots, said, oh, no, no, it was a commercial decision. And there was an example the other day, a very small example, with Great Western Railway, where they were blocking access to certain gender-critical sites on their trains if you tried to access them via the, the, you know, the phone. And, and, and they said... Oh no! This is just because uh, this is this is not this is to do with uh, certain words that come up in there that are just banned words that the phone isn't recognising is, is fine. But actually, when people tried to get to it, it said this is to do with hate and, and so on. So the point is, again, they didn't just come out and say yes, this is our policy. So it's a very long question, but my point is, the people doing this, some of them seem to recognise, at very least, that the public don't like this or that there's something wrong about it. Because why doesn't Cooch just come out and say, yeah, we believe in inclusivity and Farage didn't meet it, he's, he's a scumbag. They, they can't say that. They go, oh, it's commercial, it's money, we still like money, guys. So what's going on? Do, are they aware this is wrong or are they aware that the people don't like it or, or what? Yeah, I think what it is is they are, they are believers, I believe. I mean, they may be virtue signalers, but I also think a lot of them are believers, especially the comms and the HR departments that are kind of running these campaigns. Uh, but they're also aware that these things are quite unpopular and get them bad press, uh, particularly in this, from the center to the right, uh, which is maybe a significant part of their customer base. Uh, so they have to kind of tread carefully. And so one of the strategies is denial, as you say. And this has happened time and time again, uh, you know, in the U.S. case as well, you know, denial that critical race theory is being taught. Uh, because it isn't sort of high critical race theory, it's sort of vulgarized concepts like white privilege that are derived from the, the exact same uh, outlook. Um, so I think partly they realize that it's, it's unpopular, and so they have to go to these justifications. I mean, a lot of times they will, by the way, assume you will have a 50 IQ and just say, no, this is all about being inclusive and nice and compassionate. That's often a response. 
and then if you actually press on it and say, yeah, but this is kind of illiberal and violates free speech, you know, they'll always sort of, if they can't deflect you towards the sort of velvet glove surface labels, they will then try and obfuscate as either say it's not happening or as you say that it's just about money or there's some other motivation. Because I think probably fundamentally deep down they haven't, the, the companies haven't sort of done an exhaustive logical, they haven't done a logical defense of, of these ideas that are being pushed in their HR departments. Because those ideas are being lifted from other sources which are ultimately winding back to critical social justice and, you know, departments and scholars in, in universities who are completely unempirical and not logically driven. And so therefore, if you actually spool this thing and, and take it apart, it unwinds pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, that is one thing they just they they can't actually defend it because it's not defensible. But um, what about then this? I always ask a big question on this, and it seems like we may as well go straight to it now. Which is, I say, how do we win the culture war? And this a similar question that you you've sort of alluded to in your forthcoming book is what we do about it. So that's the same question basically. How do we beat this thing? Yeah, and that is a a, a big question, and you know a lot of the books have not provided answers to. Now I will say that. The most recent, Rufo's book and especially Richard Hanania's book uh, do provide answers to that. And, I would, and I'll say a couple of things. One is that there is a view that sort of in certain right-wing circles, you know, post-liberal circles, that it's all lost. Um, there's nothing you can do within liberal democracy and we've just got to retreat or build our own parallel institutions. Separate schools, separate universities, separate media, whatever. Um, my view is somewhat different. I actually think that you can politically reform the existing system. And I think Ron DeSantis in Florida is giving us an example of that, that you can actually push institutions, you can rebalance them away from political bias towards neutrality and balance. I, that, I think, is a doable political project, but we have hardly even begun to do it. Um, so where do you start? And I think Hanania's argument, I know his book hasn't yet been released, but it's not an original argument, but essentially the argument is that you've got to start with equality law and a major overhaul. Uh, major overhaul of equality law and also issuing um, bureaucratic guidance that makes it very clear which principles trump which principles. In, so, for example, free speech trumps um, people being offended and feeling emotionally unsafe and therefore feeling hostile. No, it's going to be made very clear, you know, at a university, academic freedom, freedom of speech trumps your perception of a hostile environment unless these standards, which are very well set out, are met. What we have right now is just vague law that can be stretched and pushed by activists. The second thing is you need enforcement. You know, the Higher Education Freedom Bill has a academic freedom directorate which can really, you know, adjudicate cases. Uh, issue uh, warnings, fine universities, and also gives people a right to sue. All of that is important because lawfare is going to be part of this. What we have to do is essentially rebalance all of our institutions by changing the incentive structure. All of that takes government action. So, and, and quite aggressive, fine grained. You have to define racism precisely in terms of examples. You've got to tell schools that. Teaching critical race theory is not anti-racism, it's political indoctrination. And, and you've got to get to that level of detail. And then you've got to make sure people carry it out. And if they aren't carrying it out, you have to replace, fire, disincentivize. And unfortunately, there's really no way other than to do that. I actually think we've only begun 
that process. So I, I'm curious to see where that um, effort goes. And as I say, you know, Ron DeSantis in Florida is no doubt the leading edge of this, but more things are happening at the U.S. in the U.S. at the state level. But if the Republicans get in, I think we can, we're going to see that federally as well. Okay. So yeah. So in the so it's this case of actually sacking people. I mean, as you say, the, you, you point out it's illegal to teach indoctrination in schools, and, and you point out some of the stats that, that people, I mean, eight, well, their schools and universities, I think it was people 18 to 25, for example, most of them said that Kathleen Stock should have been sacked, or they 50... It's 50-50, 50, yeah. Yeah, and 50-50 on the question of J.K. Rowling, whether she should be dropped by a publisher, and there are shocking statistics as well on Churchill. Where's the one? There was one where something like 8 to 10% of, um, eight, Far, of, yeah. of young women, wasn't it, think that Churchill was entirely racist or bad. I've lost my... Uh, yeah, that now. he's more of a villain. That you know, They basically think he's more of a villain than a hero. Um, yeah, right. and, 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 or, or, yeah, and even support for moving his statue out of Parliament Square. So uh, basically, you're right. And, and, and some of the numbers coming out of surveys, say, in the U.S., like, should a, a professor who offends students be reported to the administration? It's like 75%. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, this is this is where we're at, right? So we're in this incredibly progressively illiberal uh, moment with young people. I mean, this is the other point, is that young people are vastly more intolerant um, on these left-wing issues than are uh, older people. And that's not because they're more left-wing. So a far-left individual over age 50 is just, is over twice as tolerant of different views as a far-left person under age 25. So we've actually got a generational problem. It's a ticking time bomb. And unless we get on top of that, uh, I think we're going to be in real trouble in 20 years. Yeah. And the actual stat was, I found it now, 9% of 18 to 20 year old women report a positive opinion on Churchill. which is so shocking to me because I'm sort of the last generation. My theory on this is I knew both my grandfathers who had both fought in World War II and so I'm the last generation, really, of, of people who had an actual empirical sort of experience of interacting with people who fought in, the, in that war. And the generation after me is just clueless about the war. And clueless about Churchill is kind of our national hero, whatever his flaws. If you're saying, I mean, that's an absolutely shocking that 9% of young women think Churchill was a positive. I mean, whereas I grew up, we all, you know, he's basically our national hero. So it, that is an incredible change. And then the idea that um, Britain's a racist country, an 18 to 25-year-old, said to a 61 to 39 margin that, that it was a racist country. I mean, absolute, that's absolute yeah. insanity. And then we had that recent meme. Where, well, it wasn't a meme initially. It was from the University of Michigan, but it became a meme going around saying that um, it was pointing out how much more conservative young men had become in 12th grade. I, n I never understand the U U.S. grades. In England, we struggle to understand those. I don't even know what age that is, but you can probably tell me. But it, <laughs> uh, age tw grade 12 would be age 17, 18. Okay, so there you last go. Last year, it, last year of high school, yeah. Right, and the graph was just conservative. They'd gone way more conservative, way less liberal. And I believe young women were getting way more liberal, so I don't know how that one's going to end up. Well, I th most of the data I've seen shows women getting more liberal or left uh, and men either stable or getting somewhat more conservative. So I guess we're going to have to watch. It just depends on which data you look at. I mean, what I tend to look at is they have a survey of 100,000. Uh, know, the U.S. has some big surveys. This is sort of what they call freshmen. That's people entering university across the entire system. They have this annual survey that's been running since 1970. 
and it shows the last update I saw was like 2019 or something, and it showed women were about 14 points now more to the left of men. And all of that has happened since about 2004. Um, so there's no question that there's been a shift to the left amongst women. Um, and so you're starting to see this amongst young people. Now, if you look at Britain and Canada, I'm, I'm from Canada, where you, know, you can see, for example, now, um, under age 35 men in Canada, it's like 50% of them are voting for right-wing parties. Under 35 women, is 25%. So 50 versus 25 is a massive, absolutely massive gap. U.S., same thing. Uh, in Britain, not as much since all young people are almost heavily left. Not all, but it's only about one in ten voting for the right in general. But what is interesting is if you ask questions around political correctness, do you think uh, is political correctness a good thing because it protects minority groups or is it, is it a bad thing because it stifles free speech? Uh, young women and men are apart by 20, 30, 40 points on that question. So I think the sort of public opinion and attitudes are, are the same in Britain, but they're just not um, expressing themselves in different voting and, and partisan behavior. Okay. Well, I, I might want to get on to more, more of that later, but I also, yeah. I didn't want to miss talking about conservatism, where you talk about, so it kind of came up there because you mentioned Ron DeSantis a minute ago, and you said something interesting that, uh, in one of your pieces. You said the Tories have failed to learn, sorry, lean into these realignment issues, and you meant the sort of culture war issues, the way Republican counterparts like then Youngkin or Ron DeSantis have, because they are largely composed of status-obsessed business liberals. I love this phrase, business liberal. Instead of driving the salience of these debates, as with Brexit, the Tories steer clear of them as a distraction from their primary interest, which is managing the economy. So I thought that was really interesting because we've had an obvious complaint in this country that the, the Tories, the Conservatives, are not conservative. Everyone knows this. They're basically eco-socialists. I mean, it's pretty hard to deny that they're not really conservative. And it's like, why are they not? Well, you say it's because... Essentially, they're concerned about their business liberals they, they, who care about managing the economy. And perhaps is there also a perverse incentive, which I've heard about in the past, where it's easier to do nothing because you don't risk your job. And only when your job becomes imperiled, perhaps with the upcoming election or on an individual <laughs> basis, you get sufficiently threatened to actually do something about it. I don't know. Why, why are the Conservatives not conservative? Yeah, I mean, I think that the origins of this go back to sort of the, the Thatcher period, uh, number one, when, so so really a lot of MPs grew up in that period and are inspired by Thatcher and sort of her economic liberalism, really. Um, and that's why they may have joined conservative clubs at university. That's the ideology that got them excited. The Cold War was happening, perhaps, at the beginning. Um, and so really that's what conservatism was all about, was really free markets as against, you know, unionization and the communists. Um and then what I think occurs is it's also the case that amongst elite, people at elite universities and students, that version of conservatism, the more libertarian version, is more popular. I mean, libertarianism has a more educated, higher status profile than does cultural conservatism. So you're going to get a disproportionate representation of uh, economic libertarian-style conservatives uh, uh, in the upper echelons who get then become MPs who get recruited into conservative leadership roles. Um, so what we found, so there was an MP survey which really showed that the typical Tory MP uh, is well to the left of um, the typical Tory voter on cultural issues, and even slightly to the left of the average voter on cultural issues, but on the economic issues, they're very far to the right. 
that pattern's been found in uh, surveys of other European countries. So what you're getting is a sort of recruitment pipeline from particularly elite universities of these more libertarian-inclined Thatcherite uh, MPs. That's most of the Tory party. Um, so that's one factor. The other factor, of course, is that from the perspective of respectability culture, you know, ever since that race taboo came in and public morality is defined by anti-racism and by, to some degree, anti-sexism and anti-homophobia, but these become the kind of key values and the key red lines you can't cross. Um, and so one of the reasons that, for even in the Republican Party, why they didn't go after affirmative action, even though it was deeply, has always been deeply unpopular, easy issue, they feared being accused of being racist. This is in the early 2000s. So that's quite powerful, and it, it is one of the reasons why a lot of conservative MPs, it's another reason why they shy away from cultural issues. They don't want to be seen as, you know, racist or in some way, uh, you know, not polite. Uh, and, and, and therefore, I think the status motivation, the desire to be invited to the right Westminster's parties, to be liked in the media, not to be accused of being a bigot, all of those things play a role. So I just think those that combination means there's been a, a desire not to touch these cultural issues. And of course, what that does is it opens space for populace. Yeah, and the, the popular phrase has been stoking divisive culture wars. Whenever anyone says anything, it was so the Tories have absolutely failed to fight this absolutely necessary culture war, which is, couldn't really be more important. It's basically everything. But they've always said, oh, you're stoking the bias of culture, which is pathetic. And they're only just starting to address but, it but, now. But it is a, it, that framing is a very smart strategy on the left, because these are very unpopular stances to take. If they're going to defend teaching about 72 genders and uh, Britain is a racist country in schools, then what they want to be able to do is to do that undercover and not have it be dragged out in the media and politics. So the best way is to try and shut it up by saying, you're stoking a culture war. In other words, let us prosecute the culture war. Don't you get in, involved, is what they're saying. Yeah, it's been brilliant from the left, but, but it's been incredibly disappointing to hear conservative MPs say, even though you could say they are on the left but, and, and they don't care about these things, but they've said it a lot, playing into that narrative, which is appalling. Yeah, because they're uncomfortable touching it, so they'd like an excuse not to touch it, or they're just genuinely don't care about it because they're mainly about economics and foreign policy. Uh, so either way, they want to brush it aside. But as you say, these are definitional for our civilization, you know, the Enlightenment, free speech, reason, due process, all of these things, as well as national tradition, heritage, it's all bound up in this. Yeah, or perhaps they mistakenly think it's not an election-winning issue because we, we were both at NatCon recently in the, well, I wasn't speaking, I was just watching it, and you, you had a speech, but the NatCon... Conference, which well, is that is that a tautology? Is, is oh no, National Conservative Conference, so it's not a tautology. Don't worry. <laughs> um, I couldn't remember what the con stood for. So, um, so w w you were there, and, it w and 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 people like Danny Kruger were there, who isn't a Conservative Party. And then Matt Hancock came out and was aghast at this clip where Danny Kruger had said that the normative family had to be the building block of society, meaning not that he hates gay people, but that heterosexual marriage has to be the building block, which is a pretty reasonable point. Many gay people would agree. So. Um, it wasn't a wild point, but Matt Hancock just said it was this terrible thing, and he suggested you just wouldn't win with that. There's also a mistake on the Conservative Party that you won't win with these ideas. For some reason, they think the woke ideas are actually popular, it seems, even though they're obviously not. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, there's a half-truth in this, which is that um, these issues no don't have a very high salience for most voters uh, in terms of what, what voters vote on. 
these are not seen as yet as the most important issues. Now, they have a much higher priority amongst American Republican voters. I did a survey which found that for nearly half, culture wars issues were in their top three, whereas in Britain amongst Tory voters, it was only about 20%. But still, given the fact that most people, it's about two to one in the population and in the voting base against the woke position generally, like saying Britain is a racist country or teaching 72 genders in school or whatever. Um, so they're natural wedge issues. You split the left, you unite the right. What it will take, however, is a politician with the courage like a Ron DeSantis to, to really talk up these issues and make them into you know, defi you know, defining issues. Um, like Brexit, you know, no one cared about the European Union. I mean, they, they may have opposed it, but it was a low-ranking issue until first UKIP and then ultimately uh, the Brexit movement sort of galvanized that. And similarly, it's going to take uh, a certain political communications politician to say, we're teaching children to hate Britain. Or, or it's got to be a simple message that cuts through the euphemisms and the sort of sleight of hand, that, that velvet glove I talked about, which covers up uh, this quite radical agenda that's being pushed in schools and workplaces and, and in the media and so on. A politician who was actually able to say, you know, it's a bit like the Isla Bryson uh, incident that brought down Nicola Sturgeon. Similarly, if you are pushing labor, uh, oh, so you support teaching kids that Britain's a racist country, Keir Starmer. Like, if you had a politician that was on the offensive on these issues, raising their profile, I actually think over time you would raise the salience of this issue and start winning elections, which is what's happening in, in the U.S. case. It doesn't mean that this is a more important issue for people than the cost of living or the NHS, but it does mean that in terms of the issues that uh, position people into one party or the other, because, yeah, obviously the party that paves the roads better and, and, and has shorter waiting lists is going to do better. So on all those management questions, absolutely, you still have to perform. But in terms of the positional, the ideological positional issues, I think these ones have a huge amount of potential. Yeah, you're right. You just say, why have you taught the majority of our young people to hate Churchill, who defeated Hitler. Yeah, you, you say that to Starmer. What, what can you say to that? Yeah, because even he has to pretend to be a patriot and stand right. by the flag sometimes, because that's popular. No, that's very interesting. I mean, I said the other day, I didn't think I was stealing it from you at the time, but I said I would rather vote Trump, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, or Ron DeSantis than anyone in the UK, and possibly even RFK Jr., despite his climate views, because we just have no one. Because of our electoral system, first past the post, we just... I might vote, you know, Farage is impressive, reform maybe, and you could compare them, but, but otherwise the Tories are just absolutely nowhere compared, to, and I suppose it's because me as someone who cares about culture war issues, I'm just saying it's not really, it's not represented, the, the politicians aren't thinking that's a priority issue. And we also have that other thing, the thing you mentioned, sorry to go on it, which was the, the way the, the voters are aligned is, is very, it's complicated compared to where the politicians are. So in this country, the average person likes the NHS, until very recently that's starting to change a bit, but they basically like the NHS, but they want the death penalty on certain issues. I was saying this to Lawrence Fox News show, so they want, they want to sort of cure people <laughs> and kill them. So it's like, it's a quite a strange sort of, uh, you know, nexus. It's like Dominic Cummings talked about it. There's no real centre. There's just a weird mixture of views. You know, I want the death penalty for, for terrorists and people that kill kids, but I also like the NHS, and I also want the rail to be nationalised. So it's, it's a very confusing, like you say, it's, it's left economically and right culturally. And I suppose that's what the social d Democrats, no, what they call it, the SDP, SDP sorry. Yeah. But they're not yeah. really getting anywhere, but they should. 
No, it's 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 we're in a funny time. I mean, I think partly the uh, if you like the third party movements, reform, SDP, etc., reclaim, whatever. I mean, there are a number of them. None of them have really picked up. Although, I mean, the latest poll I believe had reform on eight percent, which is actually starting to move into the territory that UKIP. I mean, UKIP I think got in on thirteen percent, but. 8% is starting to, to, to really threaten, I think, the Tories. And, and actually, so if reform becomes the sort of nucleus of this protest vote, and if it gets above 10%, there's no way the Conservative Party can ignore that any longer if it hopes to get into office. And, and that's kind of the aim, right, is to say, well, if you want to beat Labour, you're going to actually have to get those voters back which means you're going to have to get out of your comfort zone. And, and, and to some degree, that's one of the reasons Sunak is at least saying certain things on migration, whatever. Uh, now, of course, in a first-past-the-post system, it might be the case that what happens is you get an internal takeover by a faction of the party. I mean, Trump, Trump's takeover of the Republican Party is an example, or Tea Party, and then subsequently Trump. Another example might be that if you've got one of the more populist candidates like Suella Braverman or, or Kemi Badnock or somebody like that, who is willing perhaps to go harder on culture wars, be, being seen as the future face of the party. You know, that could be another way in which this happens, or it could be a combination where maybe reform starts to do better, make an impact that emboldens the candidacy of a, a Braverman or somebody like that, and then that pushes the party in this direction. And, and of course, the, there's always these issues around, you know, if there's an electoral wipeout, that removes perhaps a lot of the libertarian MPs. Uh, it may have, a, you know, it can have all kinds of impacts that could change the balance of power that is keeping the CCHQ, which sort of runs the candidate selection in many ways. So there's going to be a battle. It may take the form of a third-party movement, but it could also take the form of a factional battle within the Tory party. I think it's going to be interesting to watch that unfold. Hmm. Yeah, it, it is. And, yeah, because at the moment, yeah, like you say, I mean, reform can only work as a kind of pressure group. Yeah, like maybe there'll be a takeover from within. But um, you also said, this is quite scary, you said the Conservatives will become the natural party of opposition, more like Canada which doesn't sound great, because no offence to Canada, it's kind of even more mental than our country at the moment. A lot <laughs> more, a lot more. <laughs> yeah, so you, because it's always been this cliche, the Conservatives are the natural party of government, which has been the case in this country, because they basically adapt and they manage, and like you say, they manage the economy. But now, with the, with the demographics, with the stats amongst young people, you're saying they will become the party of opposition. And will they become more Conservative as a result? I don't know. I think, I think you're right. There, there are a couple of separate problems here. I mean, one is the question of the next, say, 10 to 20 years, and the other is beyond that. Okay, so in the next 10 to 20 years, because of the aging population, you know, more and more of the population is over 60, over 50, etc. Young people are a small, relatively small share of the electorate. You know, if we were in, in the baby boom times, you know, in the 60s and 70s, that was a large young generation rising, so they, they made an impact in the electorate quite quickly, whereas I think the millennials and Zoomers aren't going to ha have an impact as quickly. They also have lower voting turnout, so it'll happen later. But So, so in the shorter term, the issue is, given our existing electorate, which would favor a lot of the policies that you and I like, um, how do we get the political system to respond to that? How do we get the Tory party or you know, essentially to... Uh, 
realign, to sort of push towards this cultural realignment that's occurred across all Western societies. But the second issue is that longer-term one you mentioned, which is what's going to happen when the median voter is a millennial, right? And I'm quite pessimistic there because I think the reason millennials and Zoomers are leaning left is for cultural reasons, for values reasons, and not for economic reasons. Because if you look at the Zoomers and millennials who own homes, who have well-paid jobs, have children, they're marginally more conservative than, than those who are single and don't own their homes, but it's not much. Um, the big differences are on views on immigration, views on culture war issues. So what I would, would argue is that, yeah, I, I'm not particularly optimistic about where Britain will be in um, 20 years when that median voter is a millennial, un unless we get a real radical change amongst generations that are following. And it's hard to see, given the nature of the schools, given the kind of social media that they're imbibing. Um, you know, one interesting factoid for you, by the way, is that, uh, you know, if we take under 35 Canadians, you know, Canada is a much more woke country than Britain, but if you look at under 35 Canadians, it's maybe 40%. 40-45% on the right. If you take that same group of Britons, it's less than half of that. So actually, oddly, I would say the future for Canada looks like it's going to be more conservative than the future for Britain if the current trends continue. So I just don't, and I just don't think the Tory party in this country is at all serious about dealing with this youth quake that is, is coming. They seem to believe that, well, once they grow up and get married and have kids, and I, I'm sorry, that's, I, that is not going to happen. But they just refuse to actually deal with that issue by addressing um, the indoctrination in schools, um, workplaces, uh, the, the culture. They don't seem to be interested. Hmm. Interesting that about Canada. Yeah, maybe you've got a better conservative party. Maybe maybe they're a bit more aware of cultural issues. I, I don't really understand what that is. Maybe in Britain, just gone. Well, no, I think it's partly reactive. So it's just been so shoved down their throats that, that right. there's a reaction. Maybe it's also the. You know, so they're tapping into the Jordan Peterson online phenomenon. Plus, the Tories have a better leader. But I, I think mainly this is about there is a reaction that's set in amongst uh, some younger Canadians against the overbearing nature of the woke regime. Now, in Britain, because you've had the Tories in for 13, 14 years, Brexit, whatever, the reaction against that produces something different. So I think it's partly thermostatic like that. Right. Yeah, because the, the, the thought here is, oh, the Tories are incompetent, and that's what people are rebelling against, their, their incompetence and corruption and party gate and so on. Whereas perhaps we need Starmer or we need Labour to see how bad that's going to get, because there's this idea that it can't be worse than the Tories, and I assure you it can be. And it's going to get so much worse on social issues and woke stuff that people will then, I suppose, hopefully react then at that point, a bit later down the line, maybe. I mean, we, one hopes. But there is such a social pressure in the country now. I wrote this piece, Confessions of a Conservative Rebel. I was trying to explore the paradox of being a conservative rebel, where that's even possible. And I just talked about this thing I called the new normie. I invented this phrase where people uh, who I know in North London who are in the sort of extended blob, maybe they work for the Bank of England or the um, uh, BBC and so on, the think tanks, and I know all these people, and they, they all think the same now, but they all used to be... The ones I am aware of, anyway, used to be more centrist, and you know they'd say things like, "Oh, 9/11 would happen," and they'd say, "Well, we have to stop and search Muslims." Things like this. But these were not lefty sort of things to say. Now the same person thinks, "Oh, I love BLM and Antifa," and, I, and it's the same person, but it's because the social convention has shifted. What do you think to that? I think you're right. I mean, especially amongst younger people, I do think there are some interesting wrinkles. I mean, a lot of people that I meet who are more like just not not in the sort of culture industries, but maybe financial professionals, 
Um, they're actually relatively strong on being opposed to cancel culture. They're relatively gender critical, for example. Um, they favor free speech, but but on the other hand, you know, they can be persuaded by certain arguments around, uh, you know, decolonization and, and coming to terms with the past, because all of this, they, they actually haven't probed it uh, deeply enough. Uh, but I think you're right that in terms of, sort of particularly younger managerial professional types, especially in the, in the knowledge industries. I mean, I think they're pretty much swept away by this. I mean, there is obviously a gender divide uh, to some degree amongst the young people, so the younger men are probably more circumspect, and more, they probably understand that there's another argument, uh, I think, to a greater degree. So <laughs> I, yeah. I, it'll be interesting to see if that gender divide emerges more strongly, as, you know, especially if labor gets in, uh, as, yeah. as the reaction against that. Well, I am in North London, and I'm, it may be skewed, but I'm in this pocket of North London where they all think Starmer's going to come in and this is the saviour and bring us back into their religious narrative, by the way. I figured out it was a religious narrative. They think Starmer's coming back. Well, not back, but Starmer's coming, and the back part is he brings us back into the EU and we're all saved. This is what they believe. It's quite frightening. Um, but the other paradox, the main paradox of the piece was, I'm this person who's been art, an artsy-fartsy person interested in obscure music and postmodern novels and all this kind of thing. And then I'm the one who is a conservative, where the people live in the small-c conservative lives, these normies that I know, two or three kids, solid jobs, same job since university, are the, uh, the, the radical lefties. This is what I find so weird. But that brings me on to the sort of question I wanted to ask you, lastly on this conservative point maybe, is, is, is conservatism doomed to failure as a movement, as an intellectual movement, because I'll just throw out some possible reasons. One, it's a reactive movement. It, it comes from Edmund Burke, perhaps, reacting to the French Revolution, you know, the godfather of conservative, whatever he's called. And it also stems from experience, uh, deductive reasoning, people sometimes call it, rather than a comprehensive, rational worldview that the left has that people find quite appealing. It's just sort of like, we like these things, they seem to work. And therefore, without its own sort of generative capability, it can only be what I think Michael Malice has called progressivism going the speed limit. So, and even in your speech, <laughs> you, you said something about the pace. And I can't remember the exact phrase now, but you said something about the, regulating the pace of immigration. And I did think again there, oh, is Eric doing that thing of like, oh, you know, it's just about the pace that change happens. So is conservatism, in a sense, doomed to lose because of its inherent flaws? I, I don't think so, because I do think that conservatism has a positive vision now, you can look historically at religious revival movements, national revival movements, ethnic revival movements, I'm just, or class, neoclassical revival movements. There are a whole series of these movements that have essentially sought to revive some element of, of past culture in some way and to sort of mainstream it in a way. Um, so it is about attachment to symbols. Like where I sort of part company with some of the traditional conservatism around Burke is it's, they seem to be making this argument that uh, things are good because we've always done them that way and because we have to be humble in what we can know about the world, we should go with the tried and true. Um, I, I'm not sure that quite washes in, in an age where we do have scientific studies and I mean, it, it, there's certainly wisdom in that, but I think conservatism is much more about uh, people's attachments to myth, symbols and narratives and traditions and those could be revived. So I definitely think there is a project there. Um, and I also think the left, you know, I think its strength is not in having a system of ideas. I think that might have been true, you know, if we were to go back to prior to the mid-60s. 
you could make the argument that the left was in some ways more rational because it believed in science and the application of evidence to policy making and all of these things. It's very interesting to read books from conservatives at the time, uh, which I, you know, I'm trying to think, um, oh God, uh, The Suicide of the West, who wrote that book now? It's, it's, it's guy who wrote the manager, James Burnham, right? So a lot of, a lot of these things he's criticizing about the left, I'm like, but I agree with that, you know, I mean, how could you criticize? But what we have now is an irrational left, which is opposed to all those enlightenment things, whether it be science, whether it be individual speech, conscience, all the things they used to believe in. And so they've, it's not, that's not really the, the reason they've been successful. The reason they've been successful, I think, is much more that they have developed a set of myths, symbols, and narratives around, you're always on the side of the little guy against the bad big guy. You're on the side of the minority against the bad majority, um, and you've got to be the one that's advancing uh, fairness, which of course is kind of torqued to mean equal outcomes. Um, and so they have this, you know, you want to be that white savior that's helping the poor and the oppressed against the power structure and the system. And that kind of myth, mm. that artist hero, avant-garde kind of myth, is very romantic and it has an appeal to a lot more people than any of the conservative myths. And I think part of the, I think it's at that emotional level that the left has won. Why it can institute its taboos. Not the arguments. I think their arguments largely, in fact, have been disproven or shown to be weak. But somehow when it comes to the heartstrings, they've won. Mm. And that is really the battleground. And I think is where the right really needs to sort of bring in some powerful myths, revive those powerful myths and, and artistic and, and mythosymbolic registers in order to actually start to win hearts. Because I don't think without you know making the most elegant, best evidenced arguments in the world, we know that that hasn't really moved the dial. Um, I think it's, right. it's going to be more than that. Yeah, basically it's saying feelings don't care about your facts. Basically, they've yeah, won the yeah. narrative. They, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure you don't mean it just as literally as this, but they've, they've got Hollywood, for example, they've They've got literally the arts. I know you're talking about right. symbolic register that goes beyond the arts, but the arts will be one part of it. We've ignored the arts. Now the Daily Wire is starting to make movies, things like that. These are the kind of things we need to move into. Well, this, this saying, you know, the right has better arguments, but the left tells better stories, right? right? So how do you then counter that? Because I think that's sort of underlying the entire malaise, I mean, the entire uh, attractiveness of the left to younger generations, particularly, I, I, you know, and, and the highly educated, although, again, not all of the are highly educated, but the sort of most modern segments of society, the sort of leading edge trend, taste making, meaning making sections are attracted to that sort of leftist narrative. And, and it's a question of how do you kind of develop something that's equally attractive emotionally. Uh, the left has its utopianism. Uh, you know, what are conservatives driving at in terms of a utopia? Right? You know, I would actually argue, though, Maybe there's not as many, but when you do get a conservative film or something, or story, it's really good. It's usually a Clint Eastwood film, right, and he usually right. kills everyone at the end. But you know, it's or it's like Warrior or something, or it's The Edge was very good, written by David Mamet, starring Anthony Hopkins, and it was actually a movie where a billionaire was the hero, and that was that's right. that's very different. That's a brilliant movie, but it, we we don't. It's not done enough. When it is done, you can argue the hero's journey is actually more archetypally conservative. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's an interesting point, right? Because I think one of the arguments around woke culture being uh, stagnant in a way is that if you have, you know, we're kind of evolved to prefer certain storylines, you know, the male hero, where, when you have sort of some woman beating up 10 
big burly guys, or you you know you have yeah. an un, unnaturally diverse uh, group of people that are yeah. It, none of these things really are able to sort of register with. Uh, our evolved predispositions as well. So you could argue that probably conservatives should have an advantage if they're able to get around censorship and the Oscars having to be X percent, you know, minority, whatever. Right. Then, then they should have some kind of an advantage in yeah. keying into those uh, what people like. Yeah, maybe it's the start of that. I'm just thinking out loud, but maybe it's the start of that change because because the left built their thing on. It was really the liberal left, and it was. It was built on Hollywood, and in the 90s, things like this, you were like, oh, yeah, this is, this is basically liberalism. We kind of agree with this, whatever. We're all fine with it. But then it became wokeness. In the way you've talked about, liberalism became this illiberal wokeness, and that's actually destroyed their art as well. And something like Star Wars would be just a sort of e- classic example. It wasn't necessarily that it was a liberal film. It was more like, say, an archetypal film. It had the Jungian archetypes Peterson likes to talk about. <laughs> but then the latest Star Wars films are just awful, woke, trash. And like one, you know, as you say, sort of the, the young female Jedi who's just starting out easily beats Luke Skywalker, <laughs> one of the best Jedi's ever. It beats him in like seconds. And, it's just, and it becomes so ridiculous that we can't... There's nothing, and it's just, a, it's just a way of imposing social justice. It's not got that inherent logic. That seems to be a deep archetypal logic that we want from films. Yeah, or authenticity as well. I mean, yeah. even if you cast... You know, if you have a, a historic picture and you've got a very un, you know, unrepresent, racially unrepresentative group of people from right. the 17th century European... I mean, it's, it's just not going to resonate. Anne Boleyn is black or something. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, but, but uh, there is this sort of deeper question of whether, you know, uh, conservatives can craft a kind of imago and kind of narrative and, 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 and ideal that competes more successfully... Um, and, and it is tough when the other side controls all of the sort of meaning-making institutions. You've got to start somewhere. Do you know who is kind of doing that? And I'll see if you have any opinion on this. Is uh, Andrew Tate. You could argue, of course, he's, he's not a fictitious character, but he kind of is semi-fictitious because he has his persona, Top G. He is kind of offering a, a, something that conservatives responded to. That just came into my head because this is something I've been criticized for is defending Tate. So I just thought I'd quickly ask if you have any thought on that. Do you know why as well? Because I was in a taxi last night after GB News where I work and, and I asked the taxi we got chatting to the taxi driver and I happened to ask him if he liked Andrew Tate and of course he loved him and I noticed my barber loves him and I noticed my accountant loves him and I think both the lefty media hates him of course we understand that but I've seen the right wing media the conservative media spectator and so on writing these sort of what I would call sort of pearl clutching hit pieces against him because he's not morally perfect but, but what I've noticed is the ordinary men have made their decision, much like Brexit and Trump. My argument is they have decided we like Tate, and we don't really care if you think he's not perfect. What, any comment? I, I, you know, it's one of these things I'm horrifically, horrifically ignorant about because I haven't okay. got around to to seeing anything or hearing anything the guy's done. And okay. so, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know exactly what he's. I know he's done some dodgy things, but maybe that's just a part of the story, right? So I, I don't know. I, I do think you can have people who are maybe a little less out there, but who kind of still can uh, reinforce. So, so what we almost need is somebody who's, you know, obviously there's the masculinity thing, but there's also perhaps somebody who, who, who talks about national traditions and memories and the deeds of, of our ancestors that were heroic or that were where they endured hardship or something like that. It sort of resuscitates that historical consciousness. I think that might be more powerful if we can hmm. kind of to some degree see some of these traditions as as more valuable than they are now i think that that might be a, a direction that that where okay. we need to go but i don't have huge 
strong views on Tate because I no, can't claim you, to have heard him. <laughs> you've been too busy reading big books and yeah. not just watching YouTube videos like I do. But um, <laughs> but what do you think? To, well, you won't be able to answer this because you won't know. But but in general, we had um, Carl Benjamin on this podcast, and he he said a similar. He mentioned tradition, but he said we need something called postmodern traditionalism, which I think he I think he may have just invented. Which is um, he said you've got to you've got to accept the left's radical subjectivity claims that okay we all experience the world differently and we're all all our cultures are valid and so on and it, there's no universal that's kind of gone the universal liberalism and his claim was we accept that claim but we say but then the english for example are a legitimate group themselves with their own preferences so he was arguing for free speech not on any kind of universal grounds but just saying okay you don't like free speech we do that's our tribal okay. preference so you have to acknowledge it what do you think to that well that's interesting i mean i am more I do believe you can have both universalism and particularism. I mean, I would sort of defend free speech as a universal. Um, as a, I'm sort of a classical liberal that way and believe in negative liberalism. Um, but I also think, you know, you have to defend particularity and people have a right to their particularity. So, so one of the arguments around immigration and, and, and nationhood and definitions of nationhood, I would argue, is that you have to allow... For the first of all, the expression of majority group identities. Um, I, I think that the prescription around that is not grounded actually in historical fact. I mean, if we look at genocides, for example, there have been studies, systematic studies of genocide, um, and particularistic type genocides around ethnic and racial exclusion are no more dangerous, no more common than universalist. Uh, genocides around universalist ideas, whether they be religious, whether they be communist, whether they be, uh, you know, you've had, what you tend to get is just universalist ideological extremism, uh, just as you can get ethnic exclusion. But somehow there's only a taboo around that particularistic uh, expression of national identity. There's no taboo around being an ideologue. Uh, and, and so it, it doesn't make any sense at all. And for that reason, I think there has to be space then to express those majority identities uh, and attachments and people who want things to go slower. I think that's a perfectly legitimate view. So, so in that, that distinction, for example, you're sort of basically saying Hitler can have a particular problem with Jewish people, but equally Stalin can off five million kulaks because of the application of a universe of a, a communist ideology as a kind yeah, of side yeah. product. It's like any ideology taken to an extreme. I mean, obviously, some ideologies are inherently extreme, but... From, in most cases, what you have is it's a bit like fire. You need to be you need it to warm your hands, but if you stick your hand in it, it's going to be terrible. And, and it's similar with a lot of ideologies. So you can go extreme on nationalism and ethnic attachment, and or you can go moderate on that. Similarly, with communism or socialism, you can have a moderate egalitarianism, uh, or you can start rounding up kulaks uh, and and accusing people of being. Uh, bourgeois capitalist rotors and throwing them in jail. So, so, but somehow we're led to believe that that the extremism can only really happen on one side and not on the other side, and and that if we even give an inch to uh, attachment to ancestry and territory, then then that's blood and soil, and that's leading to Nazism. In in just, mm. just like that, it's a bit like uh, if you let people have a shotgun, they're going to want uh, AK-47s, right? It's a slippery slope. So that kind of slippery slope alarmist reasoning is used all the time on anything remotely touching on nationalism whereas when it comes to uh, universalist ideologies it's it's pretty liberal you can wear a Che Guevara shirt and have your red star and that's that's great uh, you know so it just seems like a real double standard there and it's not grounded in fact yeah so we're sort of really talking about the threat to 
Well, yeah, you talked in your NatCon speech about particularism, and you said the threat you see is not so much the globalist World Economic Forum, it's much more this universal idea, universal liberalism, crushing particularism, and in this country that would just kind of mean just Englishness is destroyed or Britishness. And you also talked in your book, White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities, why, if you don't, I mean, you've touched on it there, if you don't have an ethnic majority, politics just becomes all about that. And you cited Kenya and Guyana as examples. So you're, this, is, this is what you're trying to avoid. I mean, but we are so far with immigration in this country. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure there's any way back. I mean, I'm very black pill because I was watching a, my a friend Callum from the Lotus Seat has made a brilliant film a couple of days ago, and he travels around England, and he just bases it on the census where people identify as white English or whatever it is, or zero English. And he goes to all these areas where there's no English, there's signs in different languages, and it's really the failure of multiculturalism. All it does is you get these... It just supplants more and more of the country. And you end up thinking, if you watch the film, that that are sort of English people, whatever you want to call indigenous... Whatever the word we're allowed to currently say for indigenous English people is, are just going to end up in sort of rural pockets, kind of like, you just think this is kind of crazy... But as you say, it's hard to talk about this stuff without getting called all kinds of names. Yeah, What's your but conclusion? It shouldn't, you should be able to talk about it quite openly. I mean, I think, you know, really what, what you have are different things. You've got sort of ethnicity. So if you take what, what does English ethnicity mean, um, you know, ethnicity is really about a belief in being descended from common ancestors. That's what ethnicity is. Now, of course, that doesn't mean racial uh, purity, right, because you can be... You know, if you take Jews, for example, it runs through the mother's line. There's all kinds of other DNA that are in the Jews, typically through the, the father's line marrying in. Uh, but there is still this belief back to, you know, the, the 12 tribes and Abraham and everything. And similarly, I think, so what you can have with ethnicity is you can have um, ancestors and a descent line, but you can also have absorption and melting. And that's often what's happened historically. Like if you consider groups like the Turks or the Hungarians, um, you know, they have absorbed all kinds of different DNA over the, over centuries and millennia, but there is a certain core uh, belief about who they're descended from, which which maintains itself over time. So I think, for example, in uh, in England, you could get the ethnic English who who believe that they descend from common ancestors, but you know there is intermarriage in from other different groups. Obviously, there's been a lot of Irish and a lot of other groups marrying in and. There's probably now groups that are uh, from further afield that are marrying in. But as long as the, the offspring kind of identify with the, uh, the root uh, of this group, their myths and collective memories and so on, then the ethnic group can, can survive through that process of assimilation. The, the problem becomes when you get rapid immigration and rapid diversification to the point where you start to get a, a multipolar society emerging. And so I mentioned Guyana as a place where you have, you know, you've got a, a an Afro-Guyanese pole, you've got an Indo-Guyanese pole, and they are, it's a divided situation, right? Uh, not, not divided, nasty, not a nasty war, but I mean, voting takes place along these lines. Or Northern Ireland, you know, you've got Protestant Catholic groups, they vote for different parties, they have different recreation, read different newspapers, and whatever. And it's just, it's a different kind of society, arguably it's trickier. Uh, for that kind of a society to work as well. It doesn't mean it's going to descend into chaos, no, but it just it might not work as well as, as where you have an ethnic majority group. So I think ethnic majority group helps to stabilize, uh, I think, the civic attachments a, a, of a nation. And so I think what that means is 
you've got to regulate pace of immigration so that it's calibrated to pace of assimilation, which happens organically. There's very little government can do to accelerate the assimilation process. Many things they can do that makes it worse. <laughs> so you, it takes time. It can take three, four generations. Um, so you've got to watch how quickly you go. But given we've already done all this uh, mass immigration, well, I often ask a question, and it's not just about immigration, it's a general question. I often ask on this podcast, is Britain finished? I think in terms of England, but some people prefer Britain. And you said something that's perhaps relevant to this in your NatCon speech. You said, the hour is late. We have at most a decade or two to turn back this cultural revolution in our schools and in our institutions that is remaking the minds of young people and cutting them off from the bonds that have held the country together for centuries. So obviously there you only touched on, you know, you meant CRT in school and all the other woke revolution, but it's many things. It's, it's the woke revolution, it's mass immigration, it's uh, the economy being in an absolute state. There's so many things. So is, the, is this country, as an outsider, as I suppose originally, as a Canadian, do you think we're finished as a country? <laughs> well, because I come from a country that's in even worse shape, um, <laughs> you know, I kind of think, oh, it's not so bad here. I mean, but but <laughs> I think you're right, though, to say that there are downstream effects, I think, of this cultural revolution, right? I mean, if, you're, if you manage to inculcate in your new generations that the country is inherently racist, that, that the history of the country is awful, um, and the, the only, you know, you've got to sort of worship at the, at the feet of, of sacred totemic uh, race, gender, sexual minorities, and that's the sort of highest meaning in your society. Yeah, I think you then means, it means you can't solve... You know, integration problems, crime problems, homelessness problems, uh, and ultimately it just leads to a polarization and division. So, yeah, I think that's a terrible way to go, but I think right now the way the cultural left controls the education system and the high culture and the institutions means that that's the meaning-making agents of socialization right now. So until uh, conservatives manage to turn that around, I just think they're going to be producing more and more acolytes. Um, and, and with generational turnover, the sort of median in the society is going to shift and shift and shift. Um, and, and that's the urgency, is right now there's still, you know, uh, the, the bulk of the voting population is sensible on a lot of these issues. I'm not, to say, I'm not saying the younger people can be written off. It's, it's, it's just that it's much more dicey in that young population as to where things are going to go. Um, and so it's very urgent to try and turn around culture. And, and this is where I sort of fault uh, conservatives and conservative parties is that they have really taken their eye off that ball. In the U.S., they're starting now to sort of address this, starting to understand that you don't just talk about, you know, cutting taxes and foreign policy. You've, you've actually got to focus mainly, primarily on this. Of course, you've got to manage the economy well and do all of that. But stop trying to define conservatism on economic lines and, and even... Even these issues, by the way, around vaccines, around uh, green and all these sorts of... I mean, I think those are relative sideshows, actually, because in a way, every movement, you have to focus on the most important things. And, and really, I think that, that conservatives need to be really highly laser-focused on culture wars and migration as their central calling cards, because uh, you have to sacrifice in, in other areas. But that's a prioritization. What is most urgent? Uh, and I just don't think that level of urgency has been there. It's starting to happen, um, uh, more so in the U.S., as I say, than, than in Britain. Uh, but part of the problem here is that, that you need to get conservative parties to the point where this becomes a litmus test. I think uh, there's a phrase that I read recently. It's, it has to become as uh, toxic for a uh, 
right-wing, so let's say it's as toxic for a Republican politician to um, be soft on abolishing affirmative action as it is to be pro-abortion. You know, because if you're a Republican politician and you're seen as soft on the abortion or guns issue, you, you don't have a chance of getting, uh, of winning a primary. But you can sort of, you, it's still possible to be either crypto-woke or at least to be soft on wokeness and get in. That has to become impossible. Of course, what that requires is something like uh, some kind of a lobby group or, or a campaign group like the National Rifle Association for Guns or um, you know some of the uh, religious right movements on abortion uh, to be constantly putting pressure on elected officials and you know, sign up to these pledges. Oh, these elected officials are, are, are soft. We're going to inform their constituents. That sort of campaigning, lobbying pressure is probably needed in order to reorient um, the parties in this direction. Okay. Well, I hope it happens. Eric. That was a great answer. I think I might end there because we've done over yeah. an hour and it's quite hard to top, is Britain finished? That's what just tends to be <laughs> a big question that I end on. Um, thanks so much. Where can people find you? Well, the best place to find me is online, either my website, which is uh, snaps, S-N-E-P-S dot net, or on Twitter at E-P-K-A-U-F-M. Okay. And you're, you've, got a, you've got a white shift book people, people can buy, and you've got your other book coming out, Name TBC, coming out Jan, Feb 2024? Yeah, so, so I've got a new book. I mean, it's ten, the tentative title now is Taboo. We'll see if that holds as the title. It's coming out in uh, Jan, Feb 2024 with uh, Forum Press. Uh, and it'll basically be an analysis of you know the emergence of wokeness and what to do about it. Okay, perfect, M- perfect topic for this podcast. And by the way, if you do like the podcast, please subscribe on YouTube, subscribe on audio, give it a five star review if you're so inclined. And thanks so much for doing the show. Thanks very much.